This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. It would take more than a little rain to scare away the dozen kids camped outside of Philadelphia's Sigma Sound recording studios. After all, David Bowie was inside. It was just after midnight on August 23rd, 1974. Two weeks earlier, Richard Nixon had become the first U.S. president to resign from office. But there was much bigger news for these teens. Their hero was in town to record a new album. As word got out, the local contingent of Bowie fans snapped into action, establishing a communication system that would put the FBI to shame. They seemed to know where David was at all hours. For days, a rotating group waited outside his hotel and then tailed him to the studio, sometimes beating his Cadillac limousine. Bowie and his entourage were used to crowds, but few with such unwavering dedication. They'd wait for hours on the hard sidewalk ledge for a word, a smile, even just a glimpse. Rain or shine, night or day, there they were, a tribe of teenage Martians holding vigil in an alley just off a skid row. Many couldn't even drive. Lord only knows what they told their parents. They formed a small community with their own etiquette and hierarchy. Some brought blankets, others radios. Most wore glittery jackets and spiky hairdos, dyed fluorescent shades of red. Their classmates called them freaks. They'd adopt a different name for themselves, the devotees. They came from all over town, united by their love of their favorite alien rock star. Bowie spoke to whatever it was that made them feel different, othered, and isolated. Sexuality, intelligence, social values, creative aspirations, or even just pure rebellion. They weren't groupies. They didn't want sex. They didn't want anything, other than the odd cigarette butt or strand of hair collected from inside his limo. But other than that, just being near him was enough. Rather than feeling stalked, Bowie was touched. They were sweet. He began to look for them each day, and a friendship started to develop. He dubbed them the Sigma Kids. Sometimes, he'd open the window of the control room, allowing them to hear a playback of what he was working on, a small thank you for their devotion. But today, he had something special for them. If you're still out here when I come out, he told them earlier that evening, then I'll have a surprise for you. But don't tell anyone. And so, the faithful few waited through the rainy night. They just received an invitation from David Bowie. What would you do? It was almost dawn when Bowie's bodyguard ushered them inside the studio. Chairs and refreshments had been arranged on the studio floor for the 12 or so lucky ones, all laid out in front of a pair of massive speakers. The underage kids made a grab for the wine and champagne, but most were way too nervous to pick at the corned beef sandwiches once Bowie made his entrance. He'd traded his astral attire of the prior year for an ultra-cool pastel blazer, loose tie, and hip-tinted aviators. David posed for photos and signed autographs and even politely declined one girl's marriage proposal. He thanked them all for being so wonderful and supportive. Then he asked if they wanted to hear his latest work in progress, as if that was even a question. But he was serious. The music was unlike any he'd ever made, and he wanted their feedback. 
David sat in the back of the room as they listened, biting his nails anxiously. He was worried. These weren't record label yes men or people on his payroll. These were his most dedicated fans. They'd proven it over the last few days. Would they like it? Or would he let them down? Most came dressed as Ziggy Stardust, and this was anything but. David had come to Sigma Studios in search of the sound of Philadelphia, known far and wide as Philly Soul, the smooth sonic blend that was being hailed as the second coming of Motown, a bridge between funk and disco. Philly Soul hits were burning up the American charts, crossing over from black radio to white audiences. Bowie was just one of the many fans of this jubilant music. For all of his fame, he hadn't had a top 40 hit in the United States. He hoped these new R&B-tinged tracks would be his breakthrough. But it was a gamble. Would audiences accept it? Or was he just some limey trying in vain to sing music that didn't belong to him? After all, it took a certain amount of gall for a Brit to sing a song called Young Americans to a bunch of actual young Americans. David studied their young faces closely, looking for some kind of reaction, but they were inscrutable. When it was over, a stunned silence fell over the room. For these sleep-deprived kids, it all felt like a dream. They were in the studio with David Bowie, listening to his latest music, and it was totally unlike anything they'd ever heard from him. How could they respond to this most magical moment in their lives? For one brief, awful moment, David thought they hated it. Then, one of them screamed, Play it again! David's face lit up. Really? he asked with a sheepish grin. The kids yelled in the affirmative, Yes! The night ended in a dance party. Bowie and his fans did the stomp and the bump as the sun rose over Philadelphia. It was a new day. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtug. This season explores the life, or rather lives, of David Bowie. Today's episode looks at David the Young American. He'd arrived on U.S. shores in the spring of 1974 to launch the Mammoth Diamond Dogs Tour, the Broadway-style production inspired by Orwell's 1984 and his own unnerving trip behind the Iron Curtain. The show was his most elaborate venture to date, epitomizing the dystopian drama that had made him a star. Yet as David spent more and more time in the States, he found himself reconnecting with the music that enthralled him as a young boy, American soul and R&B. This radical departure brought the risk of alienating his fans, who all but worshipped David's sci-fi characters. But with the help of some of the finest funk players of the era, plus a Beatle, it became his biggest success to date. Trading choreographed theater for genuine emotion proved to be a revelation for David, and a major artistic leap forward. But his escalating cocaine use threatened everything, his career, his marriage, and even his life. David Bowie hadn't planned to conclude the Asian leg of a Ziggy Stardust tour in a Siberian gulag, but that was looking increasingly likely. It had all been going so well, too. It was April, 1973, and he just wrapped a triumphant series of dates in Japan. Rather than fly home, the notoriously plain-phobic David decided to take the scenic route, an eight-day, 6,000-mile train journey across Russia. The luxurious Trans-Siberian Express looked like a holdover from the days of the Tsar, with opulent golden mirrors, soft velvet couches, and polished dark wood paneling. The elegance of David's quarters made the poverty outside all the more shocking as the train whisked them through the grim, colorless terrain. Coal dust filled the air and even infiltrated the car, leading David to joke about changing his name to Ziggy Soot Dust. The tracks were lined with ramshackle structures of rotted wood and frayed rope, homes for the peasants who eked out a living in the barren Soviet countryside. Outside, David spotted an elderly woman, old enough to be a grandmother, ramming railroad spikes with a sledgehammer. The vision disturbed him. The entire journey was tinged with an uneasiness. Life in the communist Eastern Bloc was rigidly controlled with checkpoints and endless paperwork, enforced by steely-eyed, unsmiling officials. David pushed his luck one day when he ventured outside the train during a brief stop at a small town. Playing the tourist, he began to film the scene with his home movie camera, 
This didn't sit well with two uniformed guards, who immediately descended on him. Before they could shove him into a waiting armored car, he was rescued by a pair of train attendants, who physically carried him back to the train and out of harm's way. I've never been so damn scared in my entire life, David would later say. The first-hand experience with a totalitarian regime would help inspire his next album of new material. Initially, David planned to go full Orwellian, adapting the novel 1984 into a stage musical tentatively titled We Are the Dead. But author George Orwell's widow was horrified at the thought of putting the book to music, especially rock music, and refused to give David the rights. Annoyed but undeterred, David took the songs he'd written and adapted the idea into his own dystopian tale, Diamond Dogs. Orwell's London became the post-apocalyptic Hunger City, where teenage punks on rusty skates lived on roofs and marauding dogs with red mutant eyes prowled the decaying streets. The lyrics told the story of a new character, Halloween Jack, a real cool cat who lived on the top of Manhattan Chase Bank above the ravaged urban hellscape. Hunger City wasn't far removed from reality in the fall of 1973. Urban America had descended into ruin. New York was heading full speed towards the financial collapse that would overwhelm the city in just a few years, leaving the metropolis bankrupt and burning. The Watergate scandal was gaining momentum, exposing the paranoia and deception at the heart of the world's leading democracy. Gas shortages meant lengthy lines and the most extreme rationing since the Second World War. In England, a miners' strike and oil embargo left millions freezing in unheated offices and factories. For the first time in living memory, quality of life seemed to be getting demonstrably worse instead of better. Had the world taken a wrong turn? David's obtuse lyrics were the result of a new approach to his writing, borrowed from William S. Burroughs. David met the legendary author as part of a joint interview for Rolling Stone that fall and grew fascinated by Burroughs' cut-and-paste composition technique, with words pulled from a basket at random and threaded together to create a fresh spur-of-the-moment thought. David would describe it as sort of a Western tarot. There was a beauty in the spontaneity, and he was fascinated by, quote, the wonder house of strange shapes, colors, tastes, and feelings it created. That wasn't the only change to his working methods. Diamond Dogs found David leaving Trident Studios, his creative home since the days of Space Oddity, in favor of Olympic Studios. He also dispensed with two of his most crucial collaborators. One was producer Ken Scott, who had overseen his remarkable run from Hunky Dory to Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane. The other was Mick Ronson. More than just the lead guitarist for the so-called Spiders from Mars, Ronson had been David's musical arranger, onstage sparring partner, and artistic soul brother. Publicly, David blamed the split on musical differences, citing Ronson's obsession with Jeff Beck as a hindrance to his own artistic journey. But the truth was more complex. David wanted to make a clean break with his past. New studio, new producer, new musicians. The fact that Ronson had recently released a solo album, Slaughter on 10th Avenue, also rubbed David the wrong way. For years, Ronson had resided on the edge of David's spotlight. Now he was 50 feet tall on a Times Square billboard, paid for by David's own management company, Main Man. David felt, on some level, betrayed that Ronson was now trying to be the star. This explains why David, never the most nimble-fingered of players, handled most of the guitar parts on Diamond Dogs himself. If Rano was going to play the front man, David would try his hand at being the guitar god. The end result of both ventures were mixed. Ronson's solo album tanked, and David struggled under the workload, writing, producing, and singing the material, as well as playing guitar, saxophone, and a host of keyboards all by himself. I was very much on my own, he would later say of the sessions. It was my most difficult album. The situation was made worse when Olympic Studios gave David the boot for failure to pay for the sessions. The blame fell on Main Man, which was spending money significantly faster than they earned it. Just the American branch of Main Man employed some 20 people throughout multiple offices spread across prime Manhattan real estate. On-call limousines, private jets, and even helicopters got employees where they needed to go, and expense accounts at Bloomingdale's ensured that they looked fabulous as they did so. 
Vanity projects, cases of Dom Perignon champagne, Rodeo Drive shopping sprees, everything was being paid for by the company's sole successful artist, David Bowie. Not that he knew anything about it. He was far too focused on completing Diamond Dogs and set off to a recording studio in the Netherlands to finish it. When it came time to mix the record, he called on his old friend, Tony Visconti. The pair hadn't worked together since Visconti produced the difficult sessions for the man who sold the world more than three years earlier. David visited Tony at his new home studio, which was little more than a construction site at that time. Instead of chairs, they had to sit on old sawhorses. The following day, Tony saw a huge truck pull up. Out came tables, chairs, and a sofa. Within minutes, the whole place was furnished. Then David showed up with a big grin. That's kind of my studio warming present, he said. The moment of levity offset an otherwise macabre album, characterized in David's words by, quote, a quality of obsession. It's desperate, almost panicked. He cited Diamond Dogs as his attempt at a protest record, but the optimistic we-shall-overcome spirit of the 60s had curdled into something darker and more sinister. You can't preach at people anymore, he said at the time. You have to adopt a position of almost indifference. You have to be super cool nowadays. Released in April of 1974, it became David's highest charting album in the States to date, but it left many critics confused. The review in Rolling Stone read, most of the songs are obscure tangles of perversion, degradation, fear, and self-pity. The grotesque visions are presented in full on the album's sleeve, depicting Bowie as a half-man, half-greyhound beast in a circus freak show, its genitals airbrushed out at the last minute in a ridiculous and costly nod to puritanical censorship. The painting had been done by Belgian artist Guy Pilliard at Mick Jagger's recommendation. Well, perhaps recommendation isn't quite the right word. David was visiting Mick one day when the Rolling Stone frontman let it slip that he'd hired the painter to do the cover for the band's upcoming album, It's Only Rock and Roll. David loved the result so much that he commissioned Pilyard to do his own album due to hit shelves before the Stones. Bowie looked ahead of the curve and Jagger was supremely annoyed. Mick was silly, Bowie cackled a short time later. I mean, he should have never showed me anything new. Mick's learned now. He'll never do that again. Threats of legal action came to nothing, but Jagger would keep his famous lips shut when Bowie was around. He'd later say, Be careful of the shoes you wear around David, because the next time you see him, he'll be wearing them. And he'll be wearing them better than you. By this stage, Mick Jagger had officially supplanted Mark Bolin as David's rival of choice. Their relationship blossomed since Mick attended the Ziggy Farewell show in the summer of 73, but as David Starr continued to ascend, their relationship took on a more competitive edge. Five of David's records had reached the UK Top 40 at once, a feat that not even the Stones had been able to accomplish. When the band played a gig in Newcastle, Jagger couldn't help but feel the crowd's attention drifting away from him and towards the side of the stage, where David was watching the show. The symbolism was obvious. David was literally waiting in the wings. And Mick had every right to be worried. Bowie saw him as the man to beat. As a young mod in the 60s, David had eagerly offered to carry a guitar for Rolling Stone Brian Jones, only to be rudely told to piss off. Now he posed a serious threat to their title as the greatest rock act on the planet. David thought the Stones were on their way out. Now it was his turn on the top of the pop pedestal. As David's wife Angie would say, David wasn't only the diamond dog, he was the top dog. Their rivalry drew them together like magnets, each one keeping a close eye on the other. Of course, a genuine friendship remained at the core, but neither could ever completely let their elegant formal persona slip. Not when they were on double dates, fooling around on song fragments, drinking at any number of chic London watering holes, or even when they went to the casino to compete over who could lose the most money. Some in their circle believed that David was madly in love with Mick, it's likely that they're mistaking admiration for lust, but if this is true, it's highly improbable that the feelings were reciprocated. And yet, the rumors persist. They're stoked in large part by Angie Bowie. In her 1991 memoir, Angie wrote evocatively of the time she caught David and Mick in bed with one another. It's a tale that's become enshrined in rock lore, 
but most who knew the men doubt they could have ever let their guard down enough to consummate an affair. Whether or not they actually shared a bed, they shared a great deal else. David's latest record drew much from the Stones, more than just a choice in cover art. Olympic Studios had been the Stones' favorite haunt back in the 60s. David also poached their favorite engineer, Keith Harwood, to help with his sessions. Micken employed the William Burroughs' cut-up writing approach on the Stones' Exile on Main Street album several years earlier. Diamond Dog's lead single, Rebel Rebel, boasted a guitar riff and on-beat drum pattern that sounds straight out of satisfaction. While recording the song, Bowie explicitly told his musicians, I want this to sound like the Stones. During sessions for Diamond Dogs, the Bowies moved into a new house just a short walk from Jagger's in the upscale London neighborhood of Chelsea. The decision to leave the funky gothic commune at Haddon Hall had been difficult but necessary. Fans descended on the place in droves, making it impossible for David to even set foot outside without being mobbed. He complained that he felt like a zoo animal in his own home. Doorknobs and other pieces of the structure were stripped away by the Bowie faithful like holy relics. There was one terrifying incident when a woman attempted to abduct baby Zoe. But the final straw came when the Bowie's dinner was interrupted by a teenager who had shimmied through an open window, totally nude. She approached David and meekly asked if she could kiss his foot. Uh, you can kiss my boot, he replied awkwardly. Then Angie called the police. The Haddon Hall era was over, but the spirit of artistic freakiness was certainly carried over to their new pad on Oakley Street. The five-story Georgian Terrace house was decorated like a blend of Star Trek, Graceland, and the Playboy Mansion. There were plastic sofas, glow-in-the-dark sculptures, spherical television sets, oversized Dali-style paintings, and airbrushed murals of sunrises and beach scenes. Hallways were lit by car headlights, and the white shag-carpeted living room was dominated by a four-foot-deep sunken sitting area done up in white leather and finished off with a state-of-the-art sound system and video player. And then there was the sunken, fur-lined, king-size bed in the master quarters, mythologized as The Pit, the very public hub of all erotic activities at Shea Bowie. David and Angie threw many parties. If you were liked, you were invited to end the evening in The Pit, a venerable sexual cocoon. Whether Mick Jagger spent time in The Pit is a matter of conjecture, but there are many others who did. One frequent guest at Oakley Street was David's new girlfriend, a young singer and model named Ava Cherry. They'd met in New York that February at a party celebrating Stevie Wonder's concert at Carnegie Hall. David was drawn to Ava's bleached blonde buzz cut immediately. He asked her if she was a singer. She didn't have any professional experience at the time, but she said yes, a gutsy thing to do in a room filled with the likes of Aretha Franklin and Gladys Knight. On the spot, he invited her to be his backing singer on an upcoming tour. A brief audition the next day led to dinner, a show, and a night in his hotel suite. She was awoken in bed the next morning by a knock at the door. That's when David introduced Ava to Angie, who seemed unnervingly happy to see her. Ava had no idea that David was already married, but she quickly got used to the idea. This just must be how it is for rock stars. The backing singer gig fell through, but she joined the couple that fall at their new London home. The menage a trois worked great for a while, but things soon took a turn when David steered Ava into the studio, intent on developing her into another main man star. David had never lavished such attention on Angie's career, and the resentment was immense. Lovemaking was one thing, but star-making was quite another. Soon, at Angie's insistence, Ava was evicted from Oakley Street. David moved her into an apartment down the road where they carried on their affair. Angie was even more bothered by another woman who'd entered the picture. Unlike most, she would stay by David's side for the rest of his life. Her name was Corrine Schwab, known to one and all as Coco. She'd started off as a secretary at Main Man, forging David's autograph for fan club photos and doing what she could to fight off the hordes of bill collectors. Her background was a bit grander. Daughter of a distinguished French war photographer, Coco used to tell her friends that she was born during her mother's shopping trip to Bloomingdale's. Schooled in America, Europe, and Kashmir, she entered adulthood fluent in multiple languages and in possession of a strong, self-assured demeanor. This made her uniquely well-suited for the everyday chaos of Maine Man, which she handled with grace and an efficiency that intimidated the uninitiated. It wasn't long before she was promoted to David's personal assistant, 
a job title that barely hints at the complexity of their relationship. Coco became David's right hand, constant companion, and his closest confidant. She shielded him from the outside world, at times acting as his driver, chef, nurse, or manager. Her loyalty and devotion were legendary. One friend recalled, David has only to utter the words, I'm hungry, and in the middle of nowhere, Coco can cook a meal over a candle and put it in front of him. They quickly established a morning routine, where she roused him each day by bringing him coffee and fresh orange juice, lighting his cigarette, and handing him his morning papers. She seemed to be all things, yet totally anonymous. This unassuming quality made her particularly lethal as David's personal pit bull, ready and willing to attack without hesitation. Coco was fiercely protective, fending off the leeches, undesirables, troublemakers, and anyone deemed a distraction or poor influence. This included many of David's old friends, who eyed Coco with utmost suspicion. They wondered what motivated this petite powerhouse, who seemed to live and die for David. Some thought she was just sad and possessive, allowing her own personality to be completely co-opted by her charge. Ava Cherry had a simpler theory. She thought Coco was in love with David from day one. Angie agreed, and she was kicking herself. It was she who recommended Coco for the job as David's assistant in the first place. Angie was impressed with Coco's work ethic and ferocity. In many ways, she reminded Angie of herself. Her instincts were right, too right, and now she'd been edged out as David's co-conspirator. She'd refer to Coco as, quote, the gatekeeper and the assassin who did David's dirty work for him and took all the consequences. As far as Angie was concerned, she was a surrogate wife and mother. David's frosty relationship with his own mom, Peggy, had left him starved for maternal attention and affection. He wants a mother, Angie would later observe, and Coco was a mother substitute. They were both dominant, tempestuous women and even looked similar. In Coco, David may have received the warmth and attention he'd always felt denied. Regardless of the precise reasons for his attraction, Coco's day-to-day presence made contact between David and Angie all the more infrequent and the gulf between them grew wide. They were driven apart not only by Coco, but also cocaine. David had never been much of a recreational drug user. Counterculture staples like pot and LSD never really did it for him. I hate anything that slows me down, he once said. I like fast drugs. He'd grown up as one of the London mods, a social scene that subsisted on a kaleidoscope of uppers and speed. Cocaine was a logical progression, In vogue with the chic celebrity set, it served as both a status symbol and a tool, providing a burst of energy and creative stimulation. That was the thinking, at least. At the time, it was believed to be non-addictive and basically harmless. Plus, it wasn't hard to find. White powder blanketed the music industry like a Peruvian blizzard. Once, in a recording studio bathroom, someone sidled up to David while he was standing at the urinal and slid a bump under his nose. As with everything... David threw himself into cocaine with unbridled abandon. It soothed his insecurities, making this shy kid from the suburbs feel worthy of his rock star mantle. It also helped him keep up with his increasingly hectic workload. By the time 1973 turned to 1974, he was using $200 worth of coke a day, snorted off the blade of an antique knife. David's music began to hint at his drug use. Tracks on Diamond Dogs included references to street deals, shooting up, snowstorms, and pattering one's nose. But the ego-inflating influence of cocaine was most apparent on the album's accompanying tour. Not content to merely play a concert, he vowed to mount the biggest, most elaborate rock and roll stage production that the world had ever seen. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol the danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. 
You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Diamond Dogs was released in the spring of 1974, it was touted as a comeback. True, David had never gone anywhere, but this was his first new artistic statement since Ziggy Stardust over two years earlier. His manager, Tony DeFreeze, mounted a promo campaign befitting the momentous occasion, a $400,000 advertising blitz that included Times Square billboards, multi-page magazine spreads, the first-ever TV ads for a rock album, and specialty-made hardcover books sent out to 5,000 journalists. But these looked positively quaint compared to the Diamond Dogs tour. From the start, the album had been designed to be performed live. Many of the tracks were written for the aborted 1984 musical, and David never lost the ambition to stage a full Broadway-style production. I'm just not content writing songs, he told the press. I want to make it three-dimensional. The idea took root on David's 27th birthday that January, when he saw Metropolis, the 1927 silent film epic made by German expressionist filmmaker Fritz Lang. The futurist Art Deco dystopia on the screen evoked urban decay through glamour rather than the grotesque. David could get down with that. The next day, he scoured bookshops for every book he could find on Lang and other German New Realist directors. He tracked down a copy of Metropolis and watched it obsessively at home, along with another surreal silent era classic, 1920's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Even more than Metropolis, Dr. Caligari's nightmarish jagged cityscape fueled David's imagination. This was his hunger city, a hellish realm of nihilism and loneliness. To make this vision a reality, David hired New York-based set designer Mark Ravitz, who'd recently started working with a new band called KISS. David gave Ravitz three words to go off of for his new stage set. Power, Nuremberg, and Fritz Lang's Metropolis. With that, and a limitless budget, Ravitz was off and running. Over $200,000 later, the set began to finally take shape. Weighing six tons and consisting of over 20,000 moving parts, it was unlike anything ever seen in the realm of rock and roll. 
It was dominated by an enormous motorized bridge that could rise and fall, delivering David to the stage. Also at his disposal was an eight-sided mirrored cage that descended from the ceiling like a giant disco ball. David even overcame his fear of heights to sing Space Oddity in a hydraulic cherry picker, which thrust him 40 feet above the first six rows of the venue. Hunger City loomed in the background, with 30-foot skyscrapers made of silk-screened newspaper, each one dripping blood. They were designed to be torn down at the end of each performance, a dramatic and very literal interpretation of urban decay. The complex mechanics brought an assortment of headaches and body aches. During tech rehearsals that June, David was nearly killed when the bridge suddenly collapsed. The crew looked on, horrified as their star plummeted to the stage. David was saved by his cat-like reflexes, miraculously jumping at the precise moment the structure smacked the ground, thus avoiding serious injury. The technical problems were never truly resolved, and David was at constant risk of being maimed or electrocuted by his creation. Nevertheless, the show opened a week later in Canada as scheduled. Fans didn't know what to expect as they poured into the Montreal Forum in June 1974. It had been less than a year since David had retired Ziggy Stardust from the stage. Who would he be now? The tape loops of animal sounds booming from the PA added to their curiosity. Anticipation mounted as the crowd waited for nearly an hour. Finally, there he was leaning oh so casually against the building of the city he'd created. We're in his fantasy now. The wah-wah funk of 1984 enveloped the room, though the band was nowhere to be seen. Like a Broadway show, the musicians were hidden by screens and props. This was far from a normal stand-and-deliver concert. David coolly ignored the audience completely, never breaking the fourth wall. Each song was presented as a living tableau, as David and a fleet of dancers performed steps by legendary choreographer Tony Basil. There was no Hello Montreal style greeting, no earnest request to put your hands in the air, clap, or scream. This was theater in the classic sense. The audience were merely spectators, watching the action unfold, and the effect was electrifying. An even bigger shock was that Bowie no longer looked like Bowie, or rather, Bowie no longer looked like Ziggy. Gone were the garish, kabuki-style jumpsuits. Instead, David wore an elegant, double-breasted, off-white blazer, suspenders, and a modest white cotton shirt. His face bore no obvious trace of makeup. He jettisoned his spiky red peacock hairdo in favor of his natural blonde, slicked back with a center part like a 1940s matinee idol. Many fans who'd showed up in their zigified, glam-rock spacesuits looked like they'd gotten the wrong invitation. During the intermission, there was a mass exodus to the bathroom to wash off face paint and glitter to save themselves the embarrassment of wearing last year's Bowie look. The musical vignettes were stylish and surreal. The song Time was a major highlight as David descended from the heavens in his octagonal mirror ball, seated in the palm of an oversized hand, delivering him to the stage like a great disco deity. For cracked actor, he was a young Hamlet in sunglasses and a cape, singing to a skull while a horde of diamond dog dancers powdered his cheeks and prepared him for his movie close-up. The hounds turned the tables on the title track, gleefully hogtying David with their leashes. Panic in Detroit found David in the middle of a boxing ring, red Everlast gloves on his balled-up fists as he shadowboxed himself, and lost. He delivered Sweet Thing in between drags on a cigarette, leaning against a lamppost in a long trench coat like a Sinatra album cover. Changes, his instant classic from Hunky Dory, had been given a cocktail piano makeover, and other legacy tracks like Gene Genie and Rock and Roll Suicide were revamped as Vegas-style production numbers. But Space Oddity was the standout. It began in a chair set in the window of a nondescript office building. David sang as Major Tom into a microphone disguised as a telephone. At the liftoff climax, the cherry picker lifted him out of the office and over the audience's heads. The width of a circle culminated in David dramatically tearing down the buildings of Hunger City. When it was all over, there was no curtain call or words of thanks from the stage. Just a voice over the PA system, delivering the Elvis-esque announcement, David Bowie has already left the auditorium. The implication was clear. There was a new king in town. 
By bringing Broadway sets and staging into a rough-and-ready rock-and-roll show, Bowie had laid the groundwork for every big-budget arena rock spectacle to come. But it came at a high cost. A crew of 15 roadies toiled for over 32 hours to assemble the set for opening night. Originally, the Diamond Dogs tour was slated to play a week-long residency in each city, making the work a little more worth it. But when the tour morphed into a series of one-night stands, the elaborate production quickly became a logistical nightmare. One night, the hydraulic lift used during Space Oddity became stuck, leaving David no choice but to sing the next six numbers suspended in midair over the crowd, which included future singer Brian Adams. When the production was headed to Tampa, the truck containing the set wound up in a local swamp after the driver was stung by a bee. There was talk of canceling the show, but David wouldn't hear of it. He delivered a stripped-down performance that earned him a 20-minute ovation. The technical problems were compounded by personal ones, especially with Bowie's band. They didn't appreciate being hidden from the audience by big black drapes, not after being forced to wear matching suits and, in some cases, cut their hair to match the 1940s aesthetic. The rigid choreography and complex technical cues meant that there was no room for improvisation, and even the slightest ad-lib was punishable by a fine. The arrangements were to be followed note for note, choking every ounce of spontaneity out of what was ostensibly a rock and roll performance. There was also some resentment over the disparity in hotels. David and his innermost entourage were put up at the Sherry Netherlands or the Pierre or something equally ritzy. The rest of the band made do with Holiday Inns. Relations reached a breaking point in Philadelphia when the band found out that their string of dates at the Tower Theater was being recorded for a live album. Aware that they were lending their services to help record a future smash, they demanded to be compensated by more than their meager $190 per week rate. Shortly before showtime, bassist Herbie Flowers informed David that the band would not perform without receiving a fee. David's bodyguard claims he was so enraged that he threw a chair before screaming for DeFreeze. The band got their fee, but Flowers was off the tour soon after. The album in question, David Live, would rank among Bowie's least favorite releases. He'd remember it as, quote, one of the shoddiest albums I've ever done, and admitted that he never played it. The tension it must contain must be like vampire's teeth coming down on you, he added. And that photo on the cover looks as if I just stepped out of the grave. He'd been looking increasingly thin in recent months, and his face had taken on a disturbingly hollow appearance, the effects of his increasing reliance on cocaine. More than the unflattering cover, he hated David Live because it wasn't where he was at musically. He would later say, Diamond Dogs scared me because I was mutating into something I just didn't believe in anymore. That persona has started to feel claustrophobic, and I needed a change. Diamond Dogs was making me sick, both physically and creatively, and I was shifting into melodrama. The characters, though providing armor and artificial confidence in equal measure, had started to grow burdensome. He wanted something with a little more emotional authenticity, something a little more real. He thought back to the spine-tingling sounds that ignited his own passion for music, soul and R&B. It didn't get any more real than that. He had wanted to be Little Richard, or at least a reasonable substitute. Somewhere along the line, his priorities had shifted, but that ambition always lay dormant in the back of his consciousness. Having made music that connected with millions, he wanted to make music that connected with himself, the boy from Bromley. With his next release, that's exactly what he would do. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. 
Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. David Bowie's first musical love was rekindled in the spring of 1974 when he arrived in New York prior to the Diamond Dogs tour. He'd later explain, I sunk myself back into the music that I considered the bedrock of all popular music, R&B and soul. The thrilling sounds were ubiquitous in American dance clubs, and David couldn't get enough. Diamond Dogs had largely been an intellectual enterprise. This music struck right through the heart. They called it soul music for a reason. David's new girlfriend, Ava Cherry, acted as his personal guide through the American R&B scene. Her father had been a musician, and she regaled David with tales of life on the black blues circuit in 1940s Chicago. She even brought him some of her dad's old clothes, silk ties, baggy pleated pants, and suspenders that had been all the rage with black performers of the past. They'd called themselves Gousters, adopting the style and swagger of the local gangsters with ostentatious fedoras and canes. It was all about attitude, pride, and hipness. David knew a thing or two about those. Decked out in Ava's father's outfits, he wanted to be a Gouster, too. Ava fulfilled David's lifelong dream by taking him up to Harlem's iconic Apollo Theater. Heads turned as this extremely freaky-looking pale dude stepped out of a limo and into the predominantly black musical mecca. Ignoring the obvious gawks, stares, gaping mouths, and probable profanities, he strolled right in. He couldn't have been happier. As a teen, he'd treasured his copy of James Brown Live at the Apollo. Now he was inside the hollowed hall himself, watching acts like the main ingredient, the Temptations, and the Spinners, live and in person. David returned to Harlem again and again in the coming weeks, to hear music or just take in the vibe of the vibrant street scene. The sidewalks were an endless fashion show with wide-brimmed hats, zoot suits, white patent leather shoes, and lots and lots of fur. More often than not, he was joined by a talented young guitarist from the Bronx named Carlos Alomar. Though he was five years younger than David, he boasted a stacked resume that included a spell in the Apollo House Band, touring membership in the main ingredient, and a lucrative gig as a first-call studio player for RCA. They'd met that spring at a session David was producing for pop singer Lulu, and they quickly hit it off. Carlos was alarmed by David's emaciated frame and the dark circles under his eyes. 
Man, you're too skinny, he told David with classic New York bluntness. You should come out to my house for a decent meal. To Carlo's surprise, David took him up on it. Despite their unequal levels of fame, David was the one asking all the questions, pressing Carlos for details about hanging out with Chuck Berry or Wilson Pickett, or the time he was fined as a member of James Brown's backing band for missing his hit-me cue. David's trips to Harlem had sparked a major record-buying spree, and before long, he'd filled a whole steamer trunk with soul discs from the past and present. Most of the new releases were straight out of the city of brotherly love, the velvety smooth sounds of Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff's Philadelphia International Records label. There was Bad Luck by Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, If You Only Knew by Patti LaBelle, Me and Mrs. Jones by Billy Paul, When Will I See You Again by The Three Degrees, and of course Love Train by The OJs. David had them all, and he listened obsessively. The potent blend of funk rhythms, lush orchestral arrangements, and seductive horns forged a new R&B sound, with lyrics steeped in romanticism and social consciousness. It was slick, too slick for some musical purists, but the soulful vocal performances were undeniable. Philly Soul was a more mature answer to the primal R&B stomps of a decade earlier. Motown had famously billed itself as the sound of young America in the 60s. Philadelphia International Records was the grown-up equivalent for the 70s. As David's love affair with Philly Soul intensified, he decided to go straight to the source. During a brief break on the Diamond Dogs tour that August, he made the pilgrimage to Gamble and Huff's song factory, Sigma Sound. He wanted to record with Sigma's crack team of studio musicians, collectively known as MFSB, or Mothers, Fathers, Sisters, Brothers, but few wanted to make time for this bizarrely dressed interloper who descended on their musical home. Instead, David enlisted Carlos Alomar as his guitarist and band leader. Carlos brought his wife, Robin Clark, and a high school friend named Luther Vandross. Long before he achieved immortality as the god of bedroom ballads and smooth sex jams, Vandross was a timid, pudgy unknown whose biggest claim to fame had been a handful of musical appearances on the children's TV program Sesame Street. That would change after these sessions. During rehearsals for a new Bowie number called Young Americans, Vandross suggested reworking the song's backing vocals. Rather than take offense, David let him take a crack at it, and the gospel-flavored result wound up on the final record. David was impressed and asked what other ideas he had. Though shy at first, Vandross offered up an original composition he called Funky Music. David loved it immediately and asked Vandross's permission to record it, on one condition. The title had to go. A scrawny, limey rock and roll star singing a song called Funky Music? That was asking for trouble. Would Vandross mind if he changed the title to Fascination? Vandross's response was immediate. You're David Bowie. I live at home with my mother. You can do whatever you like. The Sigma Sound sessions continued for nearly two weeks, and David was awake for most of it. Fueled by his increasing appetite for cocaine and uppers, he worked day and night, pushing himself beyond his usual workaholic tendencies. The band would curl up in quiet corners of the studio, desperate to snag a few moments of rest whenever they could. Following one grueling all-night session, David threw open the studio doors at dawn and invited the camped-out, bleary-eyed fans to come inside for an impromptu listening party. These so-called Sigma kids were the first to hear tracks for the album that would become Young Americans. The rapturous response came as a huge relief to David, who was genuinely unsure how this abrupt change in direction would be received. Gone were the complex sci-fi plot lines that had characterized his biggest successes to date. Instead, he relied on feelings to drive the music. It's one of the first albums I've done that bounds along an emotional impact, he said proudly at the time. There's not a concept in sight. When released in the spring of 1975, Young Americans was his first album in years to depict David on the cover, and not a Ziggy incarnation. The songs themselves were an almost total rejection of rock and roll, which Bowie declared dead, a toothless old woman. Whether or not that was actually true in the mid-70s is up for debate, but his decision to move into a genre like soul seemed to invite ridicule, if not outright mockery. Back in the 50s, this was called race music. Times had changed, 
but the cultural implications still held firm. What business did a white boy from England have singing this music? Some would call the effort pretentious and fake, but David never pretended to be something he wasn't. Though he had soul, he knew he was no soulster. David once described young Americans as, quote, the phoniest R&B I've ever heard. If I ever would have had my hot hands on that record when I was growing up, I would have cracked it over my knee. Over the years, he frequently referred to the album as, quote, plastic soul, presumably to differentiate it from the genuine article. The self-deprecation is largely an act of self-defense, but it's also a disservice to the work of Carlos Alomar, Robin Clark, Luther Vandross, and the host of other artists of color who contributed. Viewed today, young Americans may raise questions about the fine line between appropriation and appreciation, but Bowie doesn't come across as an imposter. Instead, he's merely an outsider, a role he plays in most of his work. In fact, it may not be a role at all. After wrapping the Sigma sessions that August, David found himself in an awkward position. He was due to continue touring Diamond Dogs, an album that no longer interested him musically. The obvious solution would be to tweak the set list. This wouldn't have been a problem if this were any other tour, but Diamond Dogs wasn't just any other tour. This was a production, an obscenely expensive one at that. Every song had complex choreography and an elaborate set. To junk the songs more or less meant junking the whole show. And so that's exactly what he did. Tony DeFreeze had to grin and bear it as $400,000 worth of sets and props were scrapped, with pieces given away to the drama department of a Philadelphia high school. Tragically, almost no video footage of the grand spectacle is known to exist. Beyond a handful of brief clips from shaky fan-filmed home movies, David's most ambitious production survives only as a cherished memory for the lucky fans who were able to experience it live. To Bowie and the band, the jettison set was a relief. It was a costly creative burden. With the weight lifted, he could just focus on the music. The band, now including Carlos Alomar, Luther Vandross, Robin Clark, Ava Cherry, and other Sigma Sound cohorts, emerged from the wings to reclaim their place on stage in full view of the crowd. David himself took center stage, dressed like a Harlem street hustler in tapered zoot suits, baggy pants, suspenders, and checkered ties, a regular gouster that would do Ava Cherry's dad proud. With just a plain white backdrop, the stripped-down Soul Review, playfully dubbed the Philly Dogs Tour, put the emphasis on the playing rather than the performance. This was disappointing to those expecting to see the overblown theatrical spectacle they'd heard so much about. They were supposed to be selling the entire show on the spectacular set, David would later laugh. And the kids would come and there was no set, no nothing. And there I was singing soul music. Some critics felt slightly cheated and the reviews reflected their resentment. One journalist likened the show to a huge sumptuous birthday cake made out of cardboard with a hollow center. Lester Bangs, the most infamous and unsparing rock critic of the era, declared the evening a parody of a parody in Cream Magazine and David a pasty-faced, snaggletooth little jitterbug. The lukewarm reviews failed to dissuade the A-listers, who turned out in droves to see David's latest. Diana Ross attended the Los Angeles performance, as did fellow Motown stars the Jackson 5. At the after-party at Al Green's house, Bowie was seen teaching a teenage Michael Jackson a funny backwards step that he learned from Tony Basil, who'd worked with an early street dance troupe called the Lockers. To this day, Many cite this as the moment that the star man taught the king of pop how to moonwalk. But it was another meeting that had the biggest impact on David's musical trajectory. His gig in Anaheim was attended by none other than Elizabeth Taylor. Clad in a diaphanous purple ensemble to bring out her violet eyes, she was reportedly accompanied by six male escorts. Her relationship with David got off to a bumpy start when the silver screen icon invited him over for a photo shoot and a casual discussion about possibly doing a film together. At the agreed-upon time, David was a no-show. Liz was furious. Though tales of her own tardiness were legendary, nobody ever kept Elizabeth Taylor waiting. David showed up hours later, looking groggy and worse for the wear, but his considerable charm was enough to smooth over the social error. He didn't end up taking the role, but they formed a bond, 
Speaking regularly on the phone about clothes and makeup, swapping showbiz gossip like slightly catty old friends. They were chatting together at a birthday party for Dean Martin's son in Beverly Hills when she waved over another familiar face, John Lennon. David Bowie was not easily starstruck. Hell, he had no qualms about standing up Elizabeth Taylor. But the sight of a real live beetle in the flesh sent him into an immediate silent panic. Back when David was just another struggling London rocker, the Fab Four were the act against which all others were measured. Three thoughts flashed across David's mind in rapid succession as Lennon ambled over. It's John Lennon! I don't know what to say! Don't mention the Beatles, you'll look really stupid! John had a decade to get used to the supernatural effect that he had on people, and did his best to break the ice with a friendly, Hello, Dave. David blurted out, I've got everything you've made, except the Beatles. At least, that's the story David told in later years. John was in L.A. as part of his estrangement from wife Yoko Ono, a debauched 18-month period later mythologized as his lost weekend. John was joined that day by his girlfriend, May Pang, who remembers David acting a tad bit odd. Seconds after being introduced, David supposedly announced, I have to go now, and excused himself. Relations were a bit warmer a few months later in December, when the pair crossed paths at the record plant studios in New York. David was putting the finishing touches on Young Americans, and John was working on a covers album called Rock and Roll. Bowie invited John over to his hotel suite, where they connected by sketching rapid-fire caricatures of each other. They hung out more frequently after that. Sometimes they get up to no good, killing bottles of cognac or mounds of cocaine the size of the Matterhorn. Other times, they'd go undercover and explore the city, John's favorite pastime. They managed to slip through the downtown streets largely unnoticed, but every now and then someone would approach them. Are you John Lennon? They'd breathlessly ask. He'd always reply, no, but I wish I had his money. David loved the line and started using it himself. One day, while out for a walk alone, he heard a voice in his ear. Are you David Bowie? No, but I wish I had his money, he replied. You lying bastard, came the response. You wish you had my money. The voice belonged to John Lennon. As their bond strengthened, David told John about his plan to record a cover of his old Beatles composition, Across the Universe. Lennon, never overly sentimental about his Fab Four years, Thought it was a bizarre choice, but gave his blessing. He even agreed to come down to Electric Lady Studios that January and play 12-string guitar on the session. During a break in the takes, Carlos Alomar began playing a hypnotic chicken-scratch guitar riff he'd been kicking around. Lately, it had been used for David's funky update of an old doo-wop tune by the Flares called Foot Stompin', but the white-hot groove was destined for more than just an onstage cover. Lennon started playing along in his acoustic guitar, absently singing dummy lyrics borrowed from Shirley and Company's recent disco hit, Shame, Shame, Shame. Shame morphed into AIM, which David interpreted as fame. A compelling topic for his first collaboration with a Beatle, after all. Fittingly, fame would become David's very first number one. A chart topper with John Lennon? It didn't get any higher than that. Andy just recorded a soul album in Philadelphia, the vibrant center of the musical universe. After making a name for himself as a fiercely individual outsider, he'd become a part of the music that had inspired him, R&B and the Beatles, and he put his own unique spin on both. But David wouldn't get an opportunity to savor the triumph. In nearly every sense, his life was about to be blown apart. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Titone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show is written and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Tristan McNeil. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
the danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.